Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is legendary songwriter Jimmy Webb. Jimmy's written some of the most iconic songs of all time, including Up, Up, and Away, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Wichita Lineman, Galveston, and MacArthur Park. His songs have been recorded by some of the world's greatest voices, including Barbra Streisand, Nina Simone, Isaac Hayes, Art Garfunkel, Linda Ronstadt, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra, who praised Jimmy's song By the Time I Get to Phoenix as the greatest torch song ever written. Jimmy's five-decade relationship with Glenn Campbell has resulted in one of contemporary music's most iconic catalog of recordings. His song Highwayman not only became a number one country hit for Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson, but they even named their supergroup The Highwaymen after his song. Their version of Highwayman won a Grammy Award for Best Country Song in 1985. Jimmy is the only artist ever to have received Grammys for music, lyrics, and orchestration. In 2016, Rolling Stone magazine listed Jimmy as one of the top 50 songwriters of all time. And he's the youngest member ever inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Jimmy joined us via Zoom earlier this year to discuss his amazing career. Welcome to our guest today. In my opinion, probably the greatest living songwriter. No, no, you know, not not to build expectations so high, Jimmy. But I, I've told you uh, in the past when we've met how what a big fan I am of your writing and of your craft. And as an A and R guy who's been doing A and R for thirty years, I, I just put you on the Mount Rushmore of songwriters, you know, A&R stands for artists and repertoire, and without you, our R would be a, a, a lot less interesting, so welcome. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I must say quickly that that is a, you know, fantastic buildup, and I, I'll try to walk in those shoes, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of great uh, songwriters out there, a lot of guys that I look up to, frankly. Um, so I just want to make that clear. In fact, this I'm doing this piano series, and I'm recognizing the composers of the 60s, 60s and 70s, because I believe that's an era in music when songwriting was like really at peak levels. I mean, there were great things being done. And they were every bit as good as those candidates that have been sort of enshrined in the the great American songbook, okay, which is great. You know, we, we I loved Harold Arlen, Yip Harburg, Cole Porter, especially Rodgers and Hammerstein. I know all those guys way back, Hoagie Carmichael. And I think that 
in essence, every generation of songwriters really builds on the the sort of achievements of the one that, that came before. But I think it's time to really stop talking about these composers as pop composers or in some way kind of, you know, diminishing the impact that this music had and and the seriousness of some of these musicians. I mean, Stevie Wonder, watch out, you know. Oh my God, as, uh, as good uh, as know. as as good as anything, Paul Simon. Paul Simon, I wouldn't I wouldn't leave out. In fact, I put him pretty nearly at the top of the list with Paul McCartney as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's a lot of talent out there, and I I. I I acknowledge uh, the compliment, if not the outright flattery that you laid on me. But well, I, same... I look forward to to talking about it about it all today. I've, I've really, okay. I've really been enjoying reading a lot that you've written and that's been written about you. Your 2017 memoir, The Cake and the Rain, has been described by the Wall Street Journal as the best pop star autobiography yet written. So now that you just told me you might be working on a uh, on a part two, maybe that yes. will be the uh, the next best pop star autobiography, not yet written. I think, unfortunately, that I, I might have to entitle volume two, even though my my book I think had a sense of humor. I hope you think so, because I certainly write them with a sense of humor. I hope if it's not coming across, then there's really something wrong with my communication skills. But well, there, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened in the book, both good and bad. I mean, talk yes. about a roller coaster. But yes, um, the book does stop in 1973, so there is plenty of room for a uh, for a second volume, which all of us who read the first volume will be thrilled to get our hands on. I, I think that the the subtitle of the second volume will probably be. The rise and fall of the recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's step back for a second and to introduce you to those who are listening to this who may not know, with some of the accolades that you've received in your life, you were the youngest ever inductee into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1986. You're a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. You received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Academy of Songwriters in 1993, the legendary Johnny Mercer Award from the Songwriters Hall of Fame. That's my favorite. You also served as chairman of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and it's replacing Hal David. Talk about legendary. And that is an organization near and dear to my heart because I'm on the board right now. So to be able to you know, sit with you as a, uh, as a chairman emeritus of the Songwriters Hall of Fame is another honor. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, my time at Songwriters Hall of Fame was one of the most fulfilling things that I, 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 I was happy. I was happy there. Some of the other honors you've had, the ASCAP Voice of Music Award in 2006, the Ivor Novello Special International Award in 2012. You're the only artist ever to have received a Grammy for music, lyrics, and orchestration. By the time I get to Phoenix, your copyright was the third most performed song in the 50 years between 1940 and 1990, which is just insane when you think about it. And Wichita Lineman was added to the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress in 2019. So that's just some of the accolades that precede this interview. 
Maybe we should just stop now. <laughs> See this cabinet over here. I, I, you know, I have a few treasured things in there. I was good friends with Sammy Kahn, and I loved him. And he loved the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and especially in the early years. I don't know, there was a special tinge of, of greatness about those evenings. And oftentimes they would end with a jam, and it would yep. be Paul McCartney and James Taylor yep. and Eric Clapton yep. all on stage at the same time. And I, I, a lot of times I'd have to pinch myself. Unbelievable. And, and say, am I really seeing this? You know, is this really happening? I mean, I always said the best little show in New York Unfortunately, it's on hold right now for the pandemic, but coming back well, strong, hopefully, in 2022. <laughs> Speaking of Sammy Kahn, Jimmy, he's referred to you as one of the real, real geniuses, and that's a direct quote from the legendary Sammy Kahn. You also talked about James Taylor, and I've spent a lot of time before today's interview listening to a lot of your music, both performed by you and written by you, and spending a lot of time listening to Wichita Lineman, which in my opinion is the greatest song ever written, but that's just one man's opinion. And to hear James Taylor's sublime rendition of Wichita Lineman, it was just beautiful. Yeah, I was I was bowled over by that. I I I look forward to hearing it, but there have been times uh, in my life when I've when I've anticipated something with a with a great relish, and then sadly. I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> sometimes the the production or something may be just out of gear, you know, and and so I come away going, well, gee, I was expecting more, which is, you know, it, it's not that important. It's not the end of the world. But I was expecting something great from James Taylor, and boy, did he deliver. That's beautiful. I'll, and I'll tell you one thing that he did that's unique it's an instinctive move from a, a singer-songwriter right at the top of the game. When he got to the end of the second verse, and I need you more than once, you want you for that, uh, and the Wichita lineman is still on the line, and he went up for the high note, and he held it for like a minute. I mean, it was hanging up there for a long time. And I need you more than want you And I want you for all time And the widget all line He's still on the line And all of a sudden the imagery for me was clear that the Wichita lineman was still on the line. Actually, he, actually embodying the image of the protagonist of the song. Yeah, he made the line and he elongated it. And that's just such a beautifully instinctive thing to do with, with the lyric. Well, that's the sign of a true artist when somebody yeah. can interpret an incredible song and, and really bring things out of it that... A song that you think you know, you're hearing new things. Absolutely. All the time. If 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 the writer suddenly perks up and goes, "Did I write that?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. You were born in Oklahoma, right after World War II. 
Your father told you about the day that he came home from the Marines was exactly nine months and 15 minutes before you were born, which I thought was hysterical. <laughs> I think it was, in, in essence, you know, my father was a Baptist minister, so he didn't stray far from the truth. <laughs> and I know that my mother met him in Long Beach and that it took her well over an hour to find him because they had both changed so much. He was in the Marines for 37 months, no wow. leave. You know, you didn't get leave unless, I don't know, some extraordinary thing happened. Where was uh, he stationed, Jimmy? Different places, but mostly in Honolulu. When he reconnected with your mom, where were they at that point? They were standing on the jetty in, in uh, Long Beach beside the battleship uh, USS Washington. They must have walked past each other like two or three times because they'd both, my mother had curves where she did not have, you know, I mean, she was, <laughs> she had blossomed and my father from a, you know, 100 pound weakling was now 200 pounds, it's six, over six feet tall. He had gone in at 17 and he, he hadn't finished growing. So these two people are, in essence, strangers. They really don't recognize you. And finally, everyone else has gone home. And they're the last two people. <laughs> and she, my mother walked up to this big, tall mountain of a, you know, this guy, and she said, incredulously, Robert? <laughs> you know? It's got to be. It's the only one left. And he said, Anne? <laughs> <laughs> and then he says that, Nine nine months and fifteen minutes later, I was born. So, and were you born in California, and then the family moved to Oklahoma later? No, no. no. Uh, I I was born in Elk City, Oklahoma, in the the sort of like Toby Keith calls it the Golden Triangle because it's well, Roger Miller was born in Eric, which was like twelve miles from where I was born, and uh, Toby's from there. Some other songwriters that like but. He he <laughs> he gets really explicit. He said, "If you put your finger on the map, he says anywhere, he said you won't find as many songwriters as as you find in Beckham County, Oklahoma." That's really funny. So your dad, like you said, was a minister. Your mother wanted you to be a church pianist. Is there a coincidence that your songs have been described as hymns? You think that's coincidental, or was that just who you are? Well, no, I mean, you know, I really, I really got, I, I didn't care much for playing hymns straight. Like, uh, you know, everybody knows, I'll just use Amazing Grace, which, which as it's written in the Baptist hymnal, I have one around here somewhere just for sentimental reasons. <laughs> but the piano arrangements were kind of dolty, to put it kindly. I mean, it would... I used to go to sleep. Uh, I, I was on the piano bench when I was like eight, nine years old. I ran into a fantastic teacher in Oklahoma City. Was that Susan Goddard? Uh, yes, Susan Goddard. Her teaching was transformative. Um, 
Um, and you were just a kid when you started studying with Susan Goddard, right? Yes, and she and she literally taught me transformative techniques, which is a thing that Leonard Bernstein referred to a lot. And that I didn't realize it. I was like twelve years old, but I was getting some inside information from her, and she. Um, I mean, literally inside music. She taught me to play Amazing Grace any number of ways, a million ways. You know, something like that. That's, and a lot, I would, that's a lot better than the first one you played. <laughs> well, it's a better, it's a better <laughs> piano arrangement. Uh, but given, I mean, I, I'm, I'm having a little fun with you at the moment because <laughs> hymn books were written in the most simple way, and so I have a lot of that kind of simplicity and the, and the kind of block chords that I play, but they're different because they're enriched by these transformative techniques that, uh, you know, you can, everybody knows that chopsticks, you can write a symphony around the <laughs> themes in chopstick. And, and once that window opens, I think, you begin to conceive of how you would write your own things. Mm -hmm. And I was taught, I took a couple of years of music in college and, and I was a good sight reader. And I found out that, you know, passing uh, music, harmony and musicianship was really basically a breeze if you worked at it, which I didn't because all it is is turning it wrong side out. If you know how to read music, which I was pretty good at, then you know how to write music, folks. I mean, it's you can't have one without the other. So that all opened up, and that's like one glorious bomb of kind of <laughs> self-realization that I could write my own things. I read that when you were growing up in, in Oklahoma and you had a job working on a tractor on a farm <laughs> and you had a contraband radio around the tractor and a voice and a song came on and it kind of hit you like a lightning bolt. You want to tell everybody uh, about that? Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I was listening to songs like uh, Jan and Dean, you know, Surf City and I had no idea what a surf city was, by the way. But the line, two girls for every boy, that, <laughs> that, that had me transfixed. I mean, that, that, that brought me to a complete halt. And two or three records later, they would play, uh, well, I'm going to 
I'm going to take it down here because some of the high, some of Glenn's notes I can't hit anymore. <laughs> there is someone walking behind you. Turn around, look at me. There is someone. to guide you Turn around Look at me Oh, I've waited But I'll wait forever For you And it keeps going To come Glenn Campbell and I stopped the tractor I stopped the tractor and I got off the tractor and it was a little green transistor radio I didn't you crash the it. tractor into uh, the farmer's wife's flower well, bed there, there were a couple of accidents that happened <laughs> uh, I, you know one thing I plowed up the duck pond I had I, I had uh, <laughs> It's impossible to describe without a knowledge of farm machinery, but I, <laughs> I, I screwed up the plow, and it was a big, heavy disc plow, and it dropped. It stripped all its threads. It weighed a ton, and it just dropped. And for some reason, I couldn't get the tractor stopped. And so several things were damaged because of that record. But... <laughs> So a life a life in farming was not meant to be, but that <laughs> night you said you, that night you made two prayers. Well, uh, I remember one of them at least. Maybe you remember the other one, but I remember saying, "Lord, one of these days, let me meet Glenn Campbell, and if it wouldn't be tacking on, please, Lord, if you could find some extra for me." I'd like for Glenn Campbell to record one of my songs. And you also prayed that maybe one day you could write a song half as good as Turn Around and Look at Me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, but how bizarre is that? That, you know, Glenn Campbell, who is just forever eternally linked to your copyrights now and forever, in that moment when you crashed the tractor, having heard his voice, and said that prayer, that the universe made that happen? Well, <laughs> I've thought about it a lot. Again, you know, I had to kick myself a couple of times and, and say, uh, you know, am I just, perhaps I'm in a mental institution just lying in a bed, sort of, you know, acting out my fantasies on some, you know, terrible drugs or whatever, but I... <laughs> I remember feeling the same way at Carnegie Hall when I was playing the piano for James Taylor, and James Taylor was singing Wichita Lyman. And I thought, this is Carnegie Hall, that's James Taylor, this is me, I'm sitting here. I've, I've always kind of had this ability to step outside my body and sort of look at the whole thing. And it seemed impossible but 
Glenn, on the other hand, that seems to have been destined. That was, I mean, I fastened on him, you know, that day, and I wrote, everything I wrote was for Glenn Campbell. That's that's what I was hearing. I was hearing Glenn Campbell. At what point after that, Jimmy, did you start writing real songs? I read that you wrote someone else when you were 12 years old, a song that would eventually be recorded by Art Garfunkel. But at what point did you think of yourself, yeah, I write songs. I, I know, I heard, I, I heard you say that you would listen to the radio and you would write response records to some of the hits that you heard on the radio as well. They used to call them follow-ups. Follow-up was like a sequel to a movie. So it would have enough of the attributes of the original recording to make it, let's say, amenable to the same listener who bought the first record. But it couldn't be the same song. It had to be completely different. I mean, one of the great ones is, uh, I remember Little Anthony and the Imperials was... And I think I'm going out of my head And I can't explain the tears that I've shed Over you, you, you Ah, oh, I'm out of here Over you, well, it was Over you <laughs> Teddy Randazzo wrote challenging chords and it's it's kind of hard for me to just slam that <laughs> one out you hear something like that and then i would run in and i would write my own follow-up for it i read something about you hearing you've lost that love and feeling on the radio for the first time in 1967 and you were quoted as saying if you can listen to that song and drive at the same time you need to go and buy yourself a heart <laughs> because you had to pull over because you couldn't see when you first heard that song come on the radio. Yeah. Also, that's true about those two uh, Anthony and the Imperial records that were orchestrated by Teddy Randazzo. Mm -hmm. And Teddy Randazzo was a student and a disciple of Don Costa. Anybody in Hollywood who knew who the top arrangers were knew that, yes, there was Nelson Riddle and there was Gordon Jenkins and there was some other guys, Gene Page, Billy Strange. They were guys who were writing some, you know, nice charts. Uh, some of the old timers like Billy May. There were guys, there were guys around. Uh, Marty Pache, who wrote the strings on Up, Up and Away. Yep. And yet, the demigod of the Hollywood producers was Don Costa. He was the inside guy that all the arrangers wanted to be like Don Costa. And Teddy was Randazzo fun. was a student of Don Costa's. Yes, uh, and uh, very, very close to him. Unfortunately, Don Costa kind of embarked on a self-destructive uh, course there. But uh, to go back and, and hear, sometimes just to hear, the, the just to be in possession of those facts is such a sweet thing. It makes doing what I do so worthwhile is the historical side and, the, and, the, and to trace the influences and say, okay, there's Don Costa, here's Teddy Randazzo, and here's Jimmy Webb mm -hmm. doing Teddy Randazzo, doing Don Costa. And didn't you end up working with Don Costa? No, I never, I, I never met him. He, he did the arrangement for 
Whatever Happened to Christmas uh, for Mr. Sinatra. And that's as close as we ever came. So you were never in the same room, even though he arranged your song. No, no. That's what I mean, though. You don't have to be in the same room to, to receive this, you know, these, these priceless gifts from guys who have gone before you. So the question is, what do you think of his arrangement of your song? I had actually been listening. I'd listened to the record for a few years. And then one early morning when I, uh, when I had stopped drinking up in Rockland and I was driving through a winter landscape and I was going over to Rockland Park to run my daily five miles, all of a sudden there's Mr. Sinatra. And for the first time, it was, I heard Don Costa's arrangement for the first time, completely clear headed, completely sober. And it was like a revelation. It was like, oh my God. How could this be this beautiful? And it's all of a sudden then I started, you know, saying, okay, yeah, Teddy Randazzo studied with Don Costa, blah, blah, blah. Those are all the things that I like, you know? Uh, and so, you know, I really think that I could probably go through my whole life as a musician and sort of draw a line through the things that I liked and my favorite cuts and my favorite groups, my favorite arrangers, my favorite songwriters, and they would all kind of be thematically linked. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's definitely a through line there for sure. Um, talk about how when your family moved from Oklahoma to California, you were 16, and then your mom got sick and your dad went back to Oklahoma, and at 17 you were on your own in California. What was that like? When I was 17 years old, my father and I had a confrontation where he said, the family's moving back to Oklahoma and uh, you're coming with us. Get, put your stuff in the car. He came by the college where I was, I had some of my gear and I was sharing a room with, with a couple of guys. I'm just going to call them the Penyak twins. We used to order a pizza and three grown men would eat one pizza, you know, <laughs> My father stopped by the Pinyaks one day and said, get your stuff, you know, we're going to Oklahoma. And, and uh, I said, Dad, I'm not going to Oklahoma. And the look of disbelief on my father's face was almost comical because I had never disobeyed a direct order from my father in my life. He was a Marine. Once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. He said, well, what do you mean? He says, of course you're going back. One thing led to another, and it finally dawned on him that, that I, was, I had finally dug in. I said, Dad, you know where we're standing right now? We're one hour from Hollywood. Somewhere in Hollywood, Glenn Campbell is making a record. I said, why am I going to go all the way back to Oklahoma? And what am I going to do there? What am I going to think about? What am I going to work at? You know, as the, as the truth dawned on him, you know, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out some crumpled bills. And he said, well, son, I wish I had more to give you. And he put $40 in, in, in my hand. And he said, son, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And he turned on his heel 
He walked, got in the station wagon, drove off. I can honestly say this, and I, I, can't, I can't squelch a certain amount of pride. I was without visible support. Thanks for the $40, Dad. <laughs> Outside of that and a few school books and some friendships that I had made in Newport Beach where I was able to get a little loan, a tiny loan, I had no support. And I started, well, I could go on. I started walking the streets in Los Angeles. I was uh, writing for a group called the Contessas, and I was their erstwhile producer and manager and caretaker. And I also guarded their honor. <laughs> that was a girl group that you put together while you were at uh, San Bernardino College, right? Yeah, and I slept on their dining room floor in Hollywood with an air mattress and Motown was right across the street. I mean, you could throw a rock over there and hit the building. It used to be called Los Angeles Federal Savings and Loan. And it was a skyscraper, one of the first in Hollywood. And I haunted Motown's office and eventually they signed me. As a songwriter? Yeah, they were advancing me $50 for every song I wrote. That's a start. You've got to start somewhere. It's better than the $40 yeah. that your dad had, had given you yeah. on his way back to yeah. Oklahoma. A, a, couple yeah. of things, a couple of things before we, we keep going. The Contessas, one of the Contessas was a woman named Susie Horton who became your muse, who you ended up writing a lot of your songs about and inspired by. And one other thing, in college, you wrote a musical in college, I read, called Dancing Girl. And in college, you were 17, 18 years old, you wrote a song for the Dancing Girl musical called Didn't We? That was later right. recorded by many people, including Frank Sinatra. Mr. Sinatra, yeah. When I was that age, I would run hot and cold. I'd write the biggest pile of garbage you ever heard. But I had enough, you know, innate willpower that I could throw it away. You know, that's one of the first things I learned to do was say, this is going nowhere, boom, into the trash. Start again, do something else, think of another thing. And so I would write, didn't we, uh, in a car on my way to Newport Beach, lyrics, melody, chords, everything. I walked into the frat house, if you will, in uh, Newport Beach with, where my college mates were hanging out and sit down at the piano. I remember it clear as day. Sat down at the piano and played Didn't We for the first time. Melody, chords, words, everything. Did you know you had written something special? I think the way that it came on me was special. It was like something that was dying to get out. It, it you know, I would say, man, you got to, pay attention and drive this Volkswagen or you're going to end up in a, in a 66 car <laughs> pileup here. And then it would come floating back into my head and I'd go, oh, this time we almost made the pieces fit. And I'm sitting there in my car seat and I'm singing this thing. Are you driving? Yeah. Hopefully you're not writing these lyrics down as you're driving. So, so that was a hot moment. And then, and then I would run for a while you know, maybe not not writing as well. And then all of a sudden something, I, I began to gradually improve my percentage 
I just began to learn the techniques and it took me a while, but I actually taught myself to write a pretty good song, you know, about almost anything. Do you remember the first cut that you got as a Joe Bett writer? The first cut I got as a Joe Bett writer was Brenda Holloway. And I had the B-side of every, I think it was every bit, little bit hurts. I had the B-side or the follow-up. So the song was called This Time Last Summer. And then the second one was, I was working with Billy Eckstein and I co-wrote with one of their writers there at Motown. And I co-wrote, I did it all for you, for the great, the great Billy Eckstein. I, I walked with giants. I mean, I, it's amazing to me now. Tony Martin was another. I was the only white kid writing for Motown in Los Angeles. This is Motown West. They gave me all the quote-unquote white artists. Tony, Tony Martin would be one of those. And they put me on non-Motown projects like the Supreme's Christmas album I worked on. That. And I, I had a cut on that. They sort of used me as an adjunct to their, to who, who they, they, Willie Horton, they considered a real Motown writer. But I was... I was something a little less... But still, it was a great stepping stone, a great first step. You mentioned Tony Martin. There's an amazing story you tell about going to Vegas to visit Tony Martin. Oh, yeah. Well, that was... Um, there was a musician's break room in all the casinos. They had break rooms because the guys who played the lounges, they literally played all day. And then they, they might take an hour off for dinner and then they'd go on and, and, and play for the rest of the night. They were sort of background music in a way. And I walked in and Mr. Martin uh, was getting dressed and so I was, I was shown to the break room and sat down and there was, there was only one other person in there. I sat down in an in a armchair and he was kind of half sitting, half sort of napping, it seemed on this couch and there was a, a lamp. It was, it was dimly lit the room and I didn't recognize the person at all. And I started going through prep. I was like going, you know, dun, 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 dun. and of all things, I sung, this time we almost made the pieces fit. I, I, I said, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll play by the time I get to Phoenix for this guy. For Tony Martin. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm going, da, 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 she'll be rising. And I'm just running it over in my mind so that I I'm be sure that I could play it. I hear this guy. I, I, I didn't mean to, but I guess I woke this guy up. And he said, uh, what you got there? And I had my, I wrote everything out. I did my own lead sheets and everything. And he says, what you got? I said, oh, this is, I said, I'm sorry I woke you up. I said, I, this is just some stuff that I'm, I'm goofing around. He said, let, let me see that. And uh, he sat up. And when he sat up, the lamp lit his face. And you knew. It was, it was Satch. Louis Armstrong, the one and yeah. only. 
I'll never forget his face because one thing that just like a like a hot you know poker in my mind was this white scar like a circle that ran around his lips it was a perfect circle it was but and it had scarred it was a hard just from place years of, of just from years of playing the trumpet he had, you know put his trumpet and he said let me see that and uh i was like trying to you know keep from you know i don't know being my pants maybe <laughs> and he had his horn he picked up his horn and he sort of went da 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 he said you know what he said this is pretty good and he looked through some some of my songs and i thought this is freaky man louis, louis armstrong is like looking <laughs> looking at my music and he he just played like a little piece of by the time i get to phoenix finally he says uh they're saying web web you know i said well i said you know mr armstrong i I don't know what to say, I, and I didn't. And uh, he shook my hand, and he says, "You stick with it." And I said, "What?" And he said, "You stick with it." <laughs> he knew you had something. And then he he walked. He sort of waved at me, and he kind of shambled a little bit out of the room. And I thought he was gone. And then all of a sudden, his head came back from the side of the door, and he said, stick with it. Wow. <laughs> How about that for validation? He told me three times. Keep going. Stick with it. Uh, I, I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's life. I mean, incredi in incredible stories. I love Anybody's this. stardom or anybody's money or yep. anybody's anything, because it was pretty gritty where I started, <laughs> but I saw some stuff. Man. Well, there's still so much to talk about. I didn't know before really diving in and, and reading about, you know, reading your books and reading about your life. I didn't realize the role that Johnny Rivers had played in your professional career. And you mentioned being a staff writer at Joe Bet. And one of your friends at Joe Bet was Mark Gordon. Mark Gordon managed the a group called the Versatiles, who later changed their name to the Fifth Dimension. And Mark Gordon went over to Johnny Rivers' label, Soul City, and he brought you along. Yes. First of all, I have to say that Mark Gordon was, without Mark Gordon, uh, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation. He was president of Motown West when I got there. And he, he got, he, I don't know, some political business of some time, and they agreed on an amicable separation, and he... I think he was being offered a better job at Johnny Rivers Music to start this album, this album company, uh, Soul City, this label. I thought he was gone forever. Oh, and I knew Marilyn McCoo and Lamont McLemore. So you all, you all ended up at Soul City with, with Johnny Rivers, and, and Johnny basically said to you, this group, the Versatiles, now called the Fifth Dimension, is your project. He said, uh, I'm going to San Remo Song Festival, and he says, I want you to teach the group all these songs. And he gave me, there was a John Phillips song, and there was a P.F. Sloan song. There was, there were several, you know, contenders, the hot guys in town. And uh, off he went. And I, and I have to say, just before I forget to do it, 
is that he's the most important character in this movie. He's the guy who actually played by the time I get to Phoenix for Al DeLore and Glenn Campbell. Right, and Al DeLore's response when Johnny Rivers played him by the time I get to Phoenix was, this is a smash. Why are you giving this to us? <laughs> That's right. And uh, Johnny said, well, Al, he said, um, you know, you can only have one number one record at a time. <laughs> and he had a number one record, Poor Side of Town which he wrote, by the way. Johnny wrote that song. That's a great song, there's, too. There's like something all... The credits are... You always, you know, from that era, you always want to look at your writing credits with a grain of salt. But he wrote that one. He wrote it, and, and I, I still love it. Just hearing you say it. How can you tell me how much you miss me? time I saw you, you wouldn't even kiss me. These are great lines. That rich guy you've been seeing must have put you down. The poor side of town. Oh, what a lyric. Yeah, I mean, that is a... What a lyric. You know, uh, uh, just one of the best lyrics I ever heard. So even though Johnny Rivers cut By the Time I Get to Phoenix for his album, he yes. released Poor Side of Town as the single, so there was only room for one number one at a time. So here, Al DeLore, you can have this for Glenn Campbell. Well, he did it for me. Well, he was also your publisher. It wasn't like it was completely, uh, you know, a, a, a gift without a return, because if he it was, was a hit, it was a totally hit for him, too. philanthropic by <laughs> nature. But he had been following Glenn's career for a long time. They made a record together at Mercury in the early 60s called The Long Black Veil. Glenn had done everything on that record. You know, I, I don't know what all of it multitask, you know, Glenn could make a record by himself. Well, a lot of people don't realize, especially now, what a gifted musician Glenn Campbell was. Do you remember the first time that you heard what Glenn and Al DeLore did with By the Time I Get to Phoenix? Yes, I, I do. And uh, I thought, that's perfect. By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. She'll find the note I left hanging on her door She'll laugh when she reads the part that says I'm leaving Al was way ahead of himself because he, he, he was a minimalist before, musically speaking and arranging, he was a minimalist before minimalist was a word. Uh, he had a sparse, austere approach to string arranging. 
there weren't a lot of glissandos. There weren't a lot of, you know, silly trills and turns and things. And, and you know, some arrangers, when they get a string orchestra to, you know, to work with, they think they have to do all of that stuff. Al just treated it almost like a keyboard instrument. They're long, you know, the string players used to call them goose eggs. They love to play that stuff. <laughs> sit there all day. Did you learn anything from Al's arranging that you later utilized oh, in your arrangements? Definitely. Well, specifically, I learned, Jimmy, you got to tone it down. <laughs> and you've got to stay out of the singer's way. Like this guy, Glenn Campbell, that you, you know, he is a singer, singer. So, uh, you know, it's like the physician's creed. It's like, first, do no harm. <laughs> so that's kind of hard to learn, believe it or not. Stay out of the singer's way. You want to be doing this great arrangement, but your great arrangement may not be enhancing that vocal the way it should. Well, you got to service the song and you got to service the singer. Absolutely. And I believe that's a hard lesson to learn. I think I've learned it, but it, it I mean, it's taken a lifetime. Uh, I did an album with Glenn where I did all the strings called uh, Reunion mm -hmm. that we did with Jimmy Bowen. Mm -hmm. And I think my string arrangement was on that album was, was, probably the best I've ever done because it was the most austere that, I, that I've ever done. It's, I was staying out of Glenn's way. That one recording that Al Delory produced on Glenn Campbell of your song, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, that one recording invented a genre of music called countrypolitan, you know, where it's, it's kind of country music, but it's also sophisticated. And obviously that wouldn't have happened without the brilliant underlying copyright of your song by the time I got to Phoenix, which Frank Sinatra has called, has referred to it as the greatest torch song ever written and the best saloon song he's ever heard. And obviously his version of by the time I get to Phoenix is, is legendary as well. At the 1968 Grammy Awards, Jimmy, Up, Up and Away, your record with the Fifth Dimension was named Record of the Year and Song of the Year. By the time I get to Phoenix, also had a ton of nominations. And between Up, Up, and Away, and By the Time I Get to Phoenix, those two songs that night won eight Grammy Awards, which is crazy. But even crazier is your age when that happened. You were 21 years old. It was a, it was a good night, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's good ones and there's bad ones. But that was uh, a good one. That was a good. One. That's the first time I ever shook hands with Glenn, and I mean it was just briefly, and somebody snapped a photo of it. And it's literally the first time I ever touched him, and I've got it around here somewhere. But is and, that the uh, time where he he said to you, "Get a haircut," or was that a different? No, time? no, no. That was a little bit later. That was. <laughs> That was the formal meeting. <laughs> that was when I came in from the Monterey Pop Festival, and I, I had more hair than John Lennon. <laughs> and, and, and my hair was prettier, too. And, and Glenn and, Campbell uh, was very straight-laced, so when he saw your uh, hair, he probably said, this is the guy that wrote, by the time I got to Phoenix, well, he needs a haircut. He saw my hair, and he saw my yak vest. <laughs> so, I mean, I was all decked out in... 
full-on lefty uniform, you know. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I identified as a liberal and a Democrat and a, and a bon vivant and a, a, you know, sexually adventurous person. I did inhale. <laughs> uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't into hard drugs at all. But uh, I never, you know, I, I, was, I was a hippie. I was a classic hippie. And my, my problem was is that I had way too much money for a hippie. And so I never really got accredited. <laughs> as I remember the first time I played the Troubadour in Los Angeles, I walked into my dressing room thinking, this is it, man. This is where Elton John played. This is where Joni Mitchell played. This is, this is you know, I could become a star here. And I walked into this dressing room and someone had carved, elaborately carved in the woodwork. And it said, Jimmy Webb plays good cash register. Nice. And uh, I thought, well, that's a nice welcome. And I, I always, rightly or wrongly, I've always attributed that to Tom Waits. <laughs> pretty sure he did. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because it must have been very, very difficult for you. Here you were, 21 years old. You're writing these songs that are getting all sorts of, of public validation at the Grammy Awards and, and becoming massive, massive hits on the charts. Yet... The times are changing, the counterculture is dawning, and it's much cooler to be an outsider or an iconoclast than it is to be the new Cole Porter. So that had to put you in a weird spot because you had people like Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong and Al DeLore and Glenn Campbell all saying, no, this is the guy, but the Tom Waits of the world are, are saying that um, you're not one of them. I was sitting on the Grammy board. <laughs> I had to have someone answering my phone all day long because it could be Dion Warwick or it could be, uh, you know, almost anyone, literally, and I'm not going to go into that too deeply, but my book has, a, has some background on, you know, some, uh, some people who call me who are very important and because of my schedule and my just because I, I just wasn't organized, I let some things slide that I shouldn't have let slide. Let's go back to Glenn Campbell for a second, because okay. after the success of By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Glenn wanted to record more of your songs, and he requested that you write something else for him, something quote-unquote geographical, <laughs> which led to Wichita Lineman, which I said before, in my opinion, is the greatest song ever written. And again, you were 21 years old. You wrote the song on a newly spray-painted green piano in a crazy house you were living in at the time. Well, I had my own commune, you know, <laughs> and I, I, ha I had, I was, I was trying to buy, and I was never successful, but I was trying, and they wouldn't sell it to me, but it was the old Philippine consulate, and it was from the golden days of Hollywood. So it was really like the Alhambra. It was so Spanish and so lavish. And the, I mean, the tile in the bathrooms cost more than a lot of the houses in the neighborhood. <laughs> it was a fabulous 
fabulous place. And I had 30, at, at one point, uh, we, we had 30 people in the house. I'm not certain who everyone was. I know that uh, one day when I was busy upstairs, that uh, Charles Manson came in with two of, two of the girls and was kind of panhandling for some sandwiches. He said uh, he was going up north, and uh, our ho housekeeper and kind of earth mother was Ann Staunton. She took care of the kitchen, and she made a bag full of sandwiches for Charlie and gave them to him, and off he went. Well, good thing he left. Well, it's a good thing he had sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at least that I didn't have, well, well to some degree, everybody dealt with that. that. That's in the book, too. But So some of these house guests spray-painted your piano. Jimi Hendrix was a house guest. Jimi Hendrix was a house guest. Mm -hmm. Yes. One night, one night. But uh, somebody had gotten into my music room. It was my music room in a huge mansion. And someone had gotten in there, and it was fun to, to make fun of the king. <laughs> so some, someone had gotten in there and spray-painted my work piano. It was just a little six-foot, you know, I don't know what kind, Story and Clark. And it, they painted it green. And the phone rang about the time I discovered that the room was full of fumes and the piano was green. Uh, the phone rang and it was Al and, and Glenn down at, I believe it was Ocean Recorders. It was either there or Western, one of the two. And they said, hey, Jimmy, what you doing? Oh, it's Glenn. Uh, yeah, Glenn. Glenn said, uh, you know, Al and I, we're down here and we're listening to the songs. And he said, this is the biggest pile of crap you ever saw. <laughs> I said, well, that's too bad. I said, you must be getting lots of songs. And he says, yeah, but I need another by the time I get to Phoenix. I said, well, Glenn, you know, I'm, I got to tell you, uh, the timing couldn't be any worse because I've decided, like, I'm not writing any more town songs. I finished with my Rand McNally period, you know, I'm... <laughs> I'm not doing towns, you know, and I think it was David Pace who who eventually wrote a ta uh, wrote a town song called Houston. <laughs> I said, Glenn, I can't do a town song. I'd love to. Well, he said, can you make it geographical? <laughs> All of a sudden, I started like I don't know. It was like someone started a projector, but I remembered this flat country out in the panhandle of Oklahoma and Texas, it's all the same. You would never know you went from one state to another state. It's all flat. The old timers out there say you can see for 50 miles. And the only thing you could see when you're on the road were telephone poles just receding into infinity. It was almost a Dolly-esque statement in itself. It, it spoke of futility and nihilism and i remember seeing that and then the day that my dad was driving me along and there was a bright yellow truck and there was a a guy up on the pole i must have been really young there was a guy up on the pole and i remember he was talking on the telephone and that was a marvelous thing to me you know how children are and back in the day it was so quiet out there 
My dad pulled, pulled the car over and we're watching the guy and we waving and it was something to look at. And uh, the wires were singing. Literally. Literally. See, uh, people who live in cities don't know that. But if you get out far enough from the noise and you start listening to things, you, you hear all kinds of things that are going on all the time. And one of them is that high voltage lines, they generate a noise. And it's like a, it's a very, it's almost inaudible, but it's there. And my dad said, now listen, now listen real close. He said, do you hear those wires singing? I listened and I heard them and all of this came flashing in front of my eyes just in a second. And I thought, I said, listen, I got an idea. I'll call you back. <laughs> they must have called me three or four times that afternoon. And I was covered with green paint because I, the paint wasn't dry. <laughs> And all the keys were covered with white. <laughs> I, I was this, this Mr. Green Jeans. I was a little, you know, put out, really, that all this, at everything. And finally, they called me around 5.30, and they said, just send it over the way it is. And I said, Glenn, it's not finished. And he said, uh, I said, it, it, it's only got two verses. And I said, I, I you know, I'm, I'm exhausted. And he said, just send it over here. He said, I'll have somebody from SIR come to pick it up. So somebody drove over. I went to bed, went to sleep, and uh, went about my life. A week passed, a couple of, week pa a couple of weeks passed. I'm in Armin Steiner's sound recorders at Yucca and Argyle. And I, I walked in, and my session was butted against Glenn's session. So there he was. And I walked out and I said, hey, Glenn. And he said, hi, Jimmy. And I said, wow. I said, I'm the next session. He said, oh, that's great. Listen, man, I said, no, don't worry about Wichita lineman. I said, you know, I, I didn't think it was very good anyway. And he said, Wichita lineman? I, I said, yeah. And he said, we cut that. And I said, you cut that? I said, Glenn, I told you that that song wasn't finished. And he said, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> and did he play it for you right then? No. No, I heard it. I heard it on the radio. I hear you singing in the wire. I can hear you through the wine. And the witcher tall lineman. Is still on the line. And what'd you think? What'd you think of Al's arrangement? Again, I was always impressed, and I knew there was something there that I was missing, but what I was missing was less is more. That's what I was missing. Billy Joel has an amazing quote. He's described Wichita Lineman as a simple song about an ordinary man thinking extraordinary thoughts, which when I read that, I'm like, that really nails the essence of that song. Well, he got me on that. I, 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 I was there when he said it. It was at the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he was in the process of deconstructing Wichita Lineman 
which is doing line by line. Wow. And it, 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 I got to share this with you. And it, 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 it sort of went something like this. It was like, well, now the first thing he says, you know, the guy says, and I need you more than want you. Well, geez, you know, that's kind of like a diss. <laughs> and he says, but then he adds, and I want you for all time. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, geez, he really <laughs> loves this girl. <laughs> I mean, people are people get obsessive about this song. And I know that you've you've said that. I've written thousands of songs. That's just one of them. That's just another one of the songs I've written. But people are so obsessive. There's a guy who actually wrote a book about the one song. And I, I recently read this book. It's called The Wichita Lineman Searching in the, in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. And the writer, Dylan Jones, is quoted as saying, it's the most perfect song that's ever been written. And there's a passage from the book that I would just love to share where he says... Wichita Lineman was a huge hit in both the UK and the US. How strange was that? A mournful ballad without a proper chorus about a man who spends his day up a telegraph pole. Who on earth would write a song like this? Who on earth would record it? And who on earth would buy such a thing? <laughs> I love that. Well, I love the Brits. You know? <laughs> and I, I concur. I concur. I don't... <laughs> I, you know, um, well, it was, I was hot. I was hot. Al Delore was a, was an absolute master. He never has been afforded the accolades and the credit that he should have gotten. It's always my name that comes up with Glenn. He played such an important role. His name should always, I think, be mentioned first because those records were, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think before you said something about... Countrypolitan. Countrypolitan. And I, I, I'm, I fancy that. I think that's a, that's a great uh, fabrication. Uh, we called it country crossover, mm -hmm. country crossover. And that's what the promotion guys were calling it. it it's a country record, but we can take it to pop stations. Yep. And in a sense, people have asked me, sometimes what do you think Glenn's uh, legacy is? And I, and I say, well, his, one of his legacies is country crossover. Mm -hmm. And it paid, he paved the way for Lionel Richie and uh, Kenny Rogers and uh, a whole lot of other. Well, you can, you can add Willie Nelson. You can add so many people yeah. who eventually well, I, crossed I, over. Hate to you know I I hate to take any credit for what w Willie's done. He's a he's a demigod. Uh, well, I mean his recording obviously, you know we we could sit here for hours, but his recording of Highwayman with, you know with Waylon and Chris and Johnny uh, again is you know my desert island discs that you know that's yeah. on it as well. I mean just talk about the and and. The the thing that's amazing is there's a whole pay it forward part of your career where you have Johnny Rivers sharing by the time I get to Phoenix with Al Delory who brought it into Glen Campbell and then years later you have Glen Campbell playing Highwayman off of your album for 
the four of those guys who were in recording their album. And not only did they record the song, but they took that song title as the name of their group, The Highwaymen. They did. It, it, took, it took a year or so, but it was kind of a delayed reaction. But they never really had a name. The four of them would go out and play, but they never really had a name. And now all of a sudden, they do an album called The Highwaymen. I was a highwayman. Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost her baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on my blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive how brilliant is it that Glenn, you know, this is something that an A&R person could be proud of, where he went in and he pitched a song for a group, a quartet of four voices, and the song had four verses. Well, let me tell you something about that. He was one of the sharpest record producers in the world. I was playing an Alan Toussaint record at my house one day. This is a true story. Uh, I don't, you know, have to make these things up. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm uh, half watching a football game and half listening to Alan Toussaint, which was kind of a, I would say, a unique singer-songwriter album in that there was there was some some really almost psychedelic things that I thought were kind of throwbacks at that point because we were already kind of moving away from psychedelics. And uh, and yet here's this song called Southern Nights, and it's kind of psychedelic. And Glenn's sitting there, and he sat there for a while, and he said, what's that? And I said, what? He said, that song. I said, that's Alan Toussaint, that's Southern Nights. He said, can I have that record? And I said, well, yeah, of course you can, be my guest. He got up, went over, took the record off of my record player, and it was like Wiley Coyote. (laughs) And then he ended up having a massive number one pop hit and country hit with his version of Southern Nights. And then I talked to Alan Toussaint about it down in New Orleans. We were after the after Katrina. We were down there trying to help out as best we could. There were a lot of musical instruments destroyed, one thing and another. And I'm talking to Alan, and he didn't exactly bristle at me, but he he sort of had a little bit of attitude. And I said, so, Alan, how'd you feel about Glenn's version of Southern Nights? And he said, I hated it. He said, he messed it all up. I said, what about those checks? <laughs> Alan. What you think of those checks? And he laughed. He laughed, and he said, "Cause nobody in the world could would recognize Alan's version and Glenn. That's true. Glenn produced a hit. Yeah, that's, and he could he could do that. That's true. I I hadn't before um, getting ready for our talk, Jimmy. I hadn't heard Alan Toussaint's version of of Southern Nights, and I went back and I listened to it. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what Glenn was able to hear and then produce in that record is completely an evolution of that song of how it was recorded by Alan. 
for sure. He just did it. He just did it in 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 like one session. He just went in. Unreal. And that, you know, he was always very quick with licks. So that boom, 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 you know that yep. kind of thing that he plays. Yep. Uh, well, we'd be you know, we'd be remiss um, if we didn't talk about what I think is the trifecta of your, you know, just eternal songs and and records with with Glenn. We talked about Wichita Lyman. We talked about By the Time I Get to Phoenix. But we have to talk about Galveston as well. And and ironically, or maybe not, you know, you talk about your Rand McNally phase. Here you've got Galveston. Here you've got uh, Phoenix, and here you've got Wichita. But um, Galveston has been described as one of the most effective anti-war songs ever written. And I know that Glenn um, had you change some of the lyrics in the song so that it wouldn't seem at the time in the late 60s with Vietnam, you know, so polarizing as a political statement or as an anti-war song. Well, there's an element of truth there, but I, my, my vision was always that it would be more effective if it reached a broader audience, therefore, let's come at it at a slightly different angle, you know? It, it's not going to be ain't going to study war no more. <laughs> it's it's going to be the plight of one single guy who's just caught up in this mess. He's a real person. And is from Galveston. It's so universal, the story of just longing for something and someone that you don't know if you're going to see again. The vets that I talked to all got it. They all, they got it the first time they heard it. And then other people, you know, who were stateside, I, they come up to me sometimes after my concert. Uh, I try to talk to everybody after my concerts, if I can, before COVID. They come up to me and say, you know, I never really knew that song. It, it sounds like it might be an anti-war song. And I say, it does sound a little bit like that, doesn't it? Galveston, oh Galveston I still hear your sea waves crashing While I watch the cannons flashing I clean my gun Dream of Galveston. It was sort of like Glenn and I working together. You know, Glenn cut Universal Soldier. I didn't know that. That was one of his first singles. Glenn wasn't, he, one of his, his big little records was Try a Little Kindness, Shine Your Light on Everyone You See. Uh-huh. He was misunderstood frequently because... He thought everybody loved everybody. Mm-hmm. He didn't really get racism at all. Well, for anyone who hasn't listened to these records, um, I would implore you to go back not only you know to the strength of the underlying copyright so brilliantly achieved by Jimmy, but these records are just brilliant. And you know we're running a little tight on time, Jimmy, but we have to talk about MacArthur Park. I know that you originally had written it on request for the association. And the association passed on it shortly before you got a telegram from uh, Richard Harris asking you to come over to the UK. Dear Jimmy, come to London, make a record. (laughs) 
Love Richard. He called you one word, Jimmy Webb. Yeah, he always did. Jimmy Webb, come to, you know. You know, there's a whole generation of people who know Richard Harris, not as, you know, the actor from Camelot or the singer of MacArthur Park, but know him as Dumbledore from the Harry Potter movies. And, you know, years before that, you and he are carousing through the English countryside with uh, some other people, and you show him MacArthur Park, and he says, I will record all seven minutes and 21 seconds of that song. That is my song. Let's show them how to do this. Yeah. A variation on the story is the first time I played it for him, I was in his apartment, and it was my first time in London, and I was agog. I couldn't believe how the women looked. I couldn't believe just how Dickensian the whole thing still was. I mean, it was it was still a time trip, Lund. It still is, in spite of all. So I was enthralled with being there, and he had a lovely apartment in Belgravia and a grand piano. I went in, and I played through a bunch of songs, a bushel basket full, and I said, this song, I said, look, uh, I don't know. This song was turned down, I, I have to tell you. I'm always honest about stuff like that. And I said, this song is turned down by the association. And he said, oh, well, let's hear it then, Jimmy. <laughs> and um, so I said, okay. And I started going... I'll have that. I'll have that. Keep playing it. Keep playing it. So I played, and I had my music spread, and I'm going like this. It's crazy to try to read it off of music because there's too much. I had no page turner, but I got through it, and he said, I'll make a hit out of that, Jimmy Webb. And he said, I'll be a pop star. MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark. All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have that recipe again Oh no And he was and he was. And uh, seven minutes and 21 seconds of MacArthur Park got uh, on the radio, was never edited. And I, I love that I read that when it was played on the radio, you got paid for three performances because it was so long. <laughs> it was so beautiful. <laughs> and is it true that you had originally written it, you know, another song inspired by Susie Horton, but and, and time that you had spent in MacArthur Park together, you had written it singular, but when Richard Harris sang it, he added a possessive that you didn't write. He always sang MacArthur's Park. Like there's someone named MacArthur who owns a park. <laughs> yeah. I would open the talk back and I would say on Lansdowne Road, this little place we were doing vocals, and I'd, I'd open the talk back and I'd say, Rich, Richard Dickey, uh, <laughs> it's, it's MacArthur Park. MacArthur Park, like General Douglas MacArthur <laughs> Park. Oh, oh, I've got it, Jimmy. I've got it. I've got it now. And he'd have a gigantic swig of Pems, you know. <laughs> our, our sessions were one Pems pitcher long. That's how long they were. And he'd have some Pems, 
and we'd run up the tape, we'd cue it up, and I said, we're just going to punch it in now. Just going to punch, no, don't worry, just get the word. So we go along and punch, and he'd sing, MacArthur's Park. <laughs> and he'd say, damn, damn it all. Damn it all to hell. And at a, at a certain point, you were like, I guess it's MacArthur's Park. <laughs> at a certain point, uh, well, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, it was a challenging vocal to assemble. It was a lot of singing. He got into some registers that probably weren't, that was my fault, that I, I wasn't doing a, a thorough job. It wasn't until we were well and truly into it that I realized, you know, when we get to the end, we're going we're gonna to be in trouble. <laughs> but the truth is that people always talk about how the girls came in and sung the last note for him. That's BS. Listen to the record. He hits that note. Amazing. He, he hits that note. Oh, no. He hits it. I, I also read, um, you know, and, and like we are running tight on time. We don't have time to talk about Donna Summer's version and and the hundreds of versions. I love the section at the end hers of your was book. The first number, hers was the first number one record I ever had. I didn't know that. That's amazing. There, I love the section at the end of your book, uh, The Cake and the Rain, where there are full three pages of artists who have recorded MacArthur Park. I counted close to 150 artists who have cut that song. But the one thing that I thought was really interesting about MacArthur Park, when it came out and was a hit at the original length of seven minutes and 21 seconds long, there were some gentlemen over at Abbey Road who thought, okay, if that could be 721, we could be 721. And tell everybody what that was. Well, the real story is that George Martin told me this story. And George Martin wasn't a guy I, I, I met on, a on an aircraft. He was my producer, he was my confidant, he was my friend for my life. The day that George died was one of the saddest days I'll ever live. He was a, a cut above an ordinary man in every way, but mostly because of his gentleness and his, his understanding of others, and, and, and I just have to say that. He told me that the guys, the lads, he called them, called him because they were playing at Tramps. They were playing all seven minutes, 21 seconds of MacArthur Park. So they were in there. Everybody was in there. He said uh, that they called him up and said, George, we, we want to make Hey Jude longer. And he didn't even ask. He never asked. He just went. And they went to either Trident or Abbey Road. I'm not sure which. They pulled Hey Jude out of the box and they put it on the thing and they actually added tape to make it longer and then they recorded the voices and they did the whole thing so it sounded like the rest of the record. And when they were finished with it, it was seven minutes, 17 seconds. But it was clearly... It was clearly a response. And 
In George's mind, his understanding was it was a response. All right. To well, you'll you'll take it. Not not a bad response. <laughs> you know, I read that your catalog ranks second only to Lennon and McCartney in terms of airplay, which is incredible. But as we wind down, Jimmy, I, I just wanted to, you know, thank you as as an A and R guy who's been doing this for thirty years. You know, I don't think when I was younger, I really appreciated your songwriting the way I do now because there's a sophistication to it, even though a lot of these songs were written when you were so young. I read that, you know, your songs have been described as the great American novel squeezed into one three-minute song. And whatever it was, whether, you know... Sinclair Lewis. <laughs> you know, Sinclair Lewis in a three-minute song, we'll, we'll take. But, you know, thank you on, on behalf of, of those of us who get to do this every day behind the scenes in the business for, you know, a life of these incredible songs. And, you know, we could go on for hours and hours. Unfortunately, we don't have the time. We haven't spoken about your own incredible records that you made. I remember seeing you in concert a few years ago at a college here out in New Jersey, and you were gracious enough to spend time with me and my wife afterwards. And And the, the performance is, is so great, and the night is so entertaining. I would highly recommend that once we're through this pandemic that everybody goes out and spends a night with Jimmy Webb because you'll have a great time. So, Jimmy, thank you again. This was incredible. Thank you. Well, thank you, Pete. You know, I should be interviewing you. You, you. you have the most stellar career. You know, this very difficult animal to be, which is like A&R. It's just a hard job. And my God, what you've done and what you've produced is, is amazing. I appreciate that. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure to see you as always. And we'll see you All soon. Right. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. Thank you. Thanks very much to Jimmy Webb for joining us to discuss his amazing ongoing career. It was an honor to get to speak to him, clearly one of the greatest songwriters of all time. If you ever get a chance to see Jimmy live, go for it. His shows are a lot of fun. For a list of upcoming shows, please visit JimmyWebb.com. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.